Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. If I'm wrong, oh well, life goes on. But if I'm right, this is something that everyone needs to know about. So I just swung for the fences because, you know, some other people have to cover their ass or protect their reputation. But I realized that, you know, I needed to just burn, burn that in order to kind of warn people and warn it in a way that people will listen. That's Eric Feigl-Ding, one of the first U.S. doctors to go five alarm on COVID-19. One year later, what does he learn? And what does he wish the rest of us would learn? Stay with us. Subscribe to Full Disclosure on Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. We are on Spotify and NPR One, and you can follow the show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Full D Radio. Joining me from Washington, D.C. is noted epidemiologist and health economist, Dr. Eric Feigelding, senior fellow at the Federation of American Scientists. How are you, sir? I'm very good. Hope everyone's staying safe. I think back to what must have been going on in your head when you tweeted with alarm about this virus to start the year 2020. Can it be this big? We've dodged pandemic for more than 100 years. You were clearly running a professional risk by declaring pandemic from the rooftops. I mean, the odds, after all, were against you being right. I think it was, if you know pandemics in history, and if you go back to bubonic plagues and things like that, it is certainly possible, right? It is in the world of, in realm of possibility and historical value, in terms of historical context. But in terms of, will it happen to us? It's kind of like, you know, will the Yellowstone supervolcano ever erupt in our lifetime? Or will we get hit by an asteroid? You know, like most of the time we don't think it could. But the reality is that, yes, it can be that bad. We can get that unlucky. And in certain ways, you know, dodging an asteroid or stopping a supervolcano is way harder because they're natural Earth events that you cannot control. And once it starts, you know, the cataclysm goes. But with a pandemic, it matters. So in certain ways, I shouted at the top of my roof because, you know, I had gotten all this info from China, from my relatives and following the, the Chinese media there that this is serious. This is real. And, you know, the Chinese government it honestly has lost control of what the hell was going on. And if Chinese government has lost control, we know that this is going to be really bad for the rest of the world. So it's one of those things you have to shout at the rooftops for people to care, turn their heads, and basically pay attention that a great flood is coming. And only then can we prevent ourselves from the worst damages. But instead, what actually happened is we have this slow-moving train wreck. It already snuck into the U.S., and by the time we realized it, it was already everywhere. And of course, we can get into the politics of all these terrible decisions that happened that has led us to where we are today in ignoring science. I remember starting graduate school in 2003. Some students from mainland China and Hong Kong had to quarantine initially. 
uh, because of SARS, which the United States largely dodged. And then you fast forward to Ebola, I mean, hemorrhagic fever, true horrific scenes of suffering in places like Liberia and the environs in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, Zika had a bit of a flare in the U.S., barely in South Florida. But for the most part, nothing really as full-blown in the United States since 1918. So was there an element of maybe Mother Nature crying wolf on contagion here? Yeah, in certain ways, um, you know, we knew that these pandemics happen every few years, and we knew that these viruses emerge. But in certain ways, we kind of ignored it because, you know, we're, it's, it's oh, it's an Africa thing, or it's a, you know, Southeast Asia thing, or it's a South America thing with Zika. And, you know, I guess we kind of uh, dodged it. But in certain ways, those uh, viruses such as Ebola, Ebola has a 50% more case fatality rate. And a virus as deadly as the Ebola on an individual level actually is not the kind of virus that will take over the globe. The virus that takes over the globe is you can't, you hard to test positive for early. You don't realize you can spread it asymptomatically. Uh, a large number of people are carriers, but are like basically passively passing it on like typhoid Mary and a small fraction and die, but a huge numbers of those people die among those vulnerable. And that is the virus that takes over the world. And so in many ways, this is the perfect storm, but also it hits the perfect storm politically in which we have an administration that completely downplays, denies and calls it a hoax and just has terrible response all around. So it's a, it's a both a natural event, but also a very exacerbated by failed leadership on a human side. I want to read from the March New York Magazine story, why was it so hard to raise the alarm on coronavirus? Uh, it starts... A bit before midnight on January 20th, that's 2020, a Harvard epidemiologist named Eric Feigelding posted a long, terrifying Twitter thread, mostly summarizing and in a few places contextualizing a new pre-publication paper on the infectiousness of the novel coronavirus that had, at the time, forced Wuhan into a total lockdown but had not yet been detected outside of China. The context, he added, was mostly alarmism. Holy mother of God, your thread began. The new coronavirus is a 3.8. That figure referred to what's called the reproduction number of a disease, how many people would be infected by a single sick person. And then it quotes you again. I really hate to be the epidemiologist who had to admit this, but we are potentially faced with possibly an unchecked pandemic that the world has not seen since the 1918 Spanish influenza. Let's hope it doesn't reach that level, but now we live in the modern world with faster transportation than 1918. Uh, the WHO and CDC, you advise, they need to declare public health emergencies as soon as possible. Close quote. Doctor, what was going through your head then versus now a year later with 400,000 Americans having since died? Yeah, well, at that moment in time, I could have, I might as well have said the aliens have landed and more people would have thought I was crazy or less crazy than if I said this kind of pandemic, the pandemic is coming, the pandemic is coming. It's just, if people have never seen it, they can't imagine it. In certain ways, Steve Jobs is right. People don't know what something is until they've actually seen it. And no one's, you know, the last one is 1918. No one has living memory of it. And so... They can't imagine something this horrific. You know, just in context, many years ago, and during the Ebola outbreak in 2014, I built a, a, a contact tracing app 
with its Silicon Valley team and a few others. And we thought, you know, hey, we needed to have something to track movements of people of who intersected and who were close contacts. But people were la laughed us out of the room. We built a beta for it. It was just absolutely cannot conceive of the chance that you could have a plague type thing sweeping through San Francisco, where which our app had demoed, or New York City. It was just inconceivable. They laughed us out because it was just utterly impossible in their brains. And I, from that experience, it taught me, oh my God, people are not going to take this seriously. And, you know, there were a lot of virologists, epidemiologists, and experts, and a few journalists writing about it. But I, I was watching, they were all kind of whimpering about it. Oh, maybe, potentially, hmm, this is a concern. But people didn't wake up, okay, what does it really mean, a concern, right? You know, people can't imagine this something the equivalent of a thermonuclear asteroid collision, equivalent of this pandemic hitting us. So I knew that people would laugh and dismiss. And if you didn't shout in a certain way, you're not going to get people's attention. And in certain ways, I don't work in academia research publications on a regular basis anymore. In certain ways, I spent the last 15 years of my life not just on research, but also on social media and in public engagement. I have a, a 5 million per, uh, person uh, cancer campaign, 6 million actually, and I have another 5 million person cancer page. And in certain ways, those experiences taught me that you have to reach people in a way that touches them. That, that makes their lives impacted and relevant for any some something that they've never seen before. And so I was like, you know what? I'm not publishing in, in this space normally, and I have nothing to lose. I can get blackballed, but, in, but if I'm wrong, oh well, life goes on. But if I'm right, this is something that everyone needs to know about. So I just swung for the fences because, you know, some other people have have to cover their ass or protect their reputation. But I realized that, you know, I needed to just burn that uh, in order to kind of warn people and warn it in a way that people will listen. You were born in China. Does your mind wander to how and when this started? Uh, the first read was the giant Wuhan seafood market and likely, you know, cross-contamination with wildlife. You saw all that initial rhetoric about the China virus. Uh, oftentimes, the Trump administration exacerbated that. Mm. Then there was also this recently rekindled conspiracy theory about a leak, a biohazardous leak from a lab in Wuhan, that it couldn't have just been coincidental. Well, right. Well, first of all, we're, we're sure it's not seafood uh, market anymore. And second of all, the latest data actually shows that it was already in Europe in November and December 2019. It was already outside of Wuhan. And we know that not just by wastewater testing that we found in June, but we also found um, a, a kid who tested positive. They actually went back uh, into blood samples and they actually found a, um, a positive in Italy, in northern Italy, that matches the wastewater also in northern Italy of the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus. So it was out for quite a while. So, and in terms of bio leaks, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist in any way. And, you know, evidence drives a lot of things. But in certain ways, look at the new variant. It is the new one, B117, is 40 to 80% more infectious, right? It is so bad. You know, we, uh, we, we've been starting to call it, nickname it, the beast, because it is just so, so darn contagious. And things that would have mitigated and kept the R under one before were not anymore. And that just arose because of just natural 
uh, evolution and driven by, you know, perhaps convalescent plasma or some monoclonal antibody drugs in the immunosuppressed person. But that just arose in less than a year. And in certain ways, you know, there's many other coronaviruses, right, that's always floating around. And we know minks carry them as well, ferrets and, and gorillas and other primates. They're great carriers. So it could easily have arisen because if this more infectious version of SARS-CoV-2 emerged within less than a year, then we can easily have a, this emerge naturally as well. So, so there's no Ultimately, evidence, did yeah. civilization eat this virus? Right. Um, I, I, this eat something uh, hypothesis. First of all, this is a respiratory virus. So eating it is probably not the source. And people oftentimes have that misconception from watching Contagion or Outbreak. Uh, those are the classic movies. Which, by the way, the Outbreak movie, it came out when I was in, I think, middle school. Actually, a par- partly inspired me to go into epidemiology. Wait, with Dustin Hoffman in that giant uh, Yes, Dustin Hoffman, Cubigan Good Jr. Obviously, that was exaggerated. Um, and, of course, you don't find vaccines that quickly. Although, we're, we almost did it as quickly now. But, I, you know, I'm not a virologist. And from, from my understanding, it can easily emerge from a combination of evolutionary triggers that forces the, the virus. So we, we have these hypermutation things normally happen too. And that is something called antibiotic resistance. Bacteria become resistant to antibodies, uh, antibiotics if you just take a half dose, partial, and then don't really squash it, right? But then this half-dose approach or partial antibiotic course allows it to it draw, forces evolution of the virus in your body. And especially if it's someone who's immunocompromised, and that's what they really think. It was someone who was chronically infected and a weak immune system that allowed it to linger in their body and develop these mutations. It's these kind of things that Again, a bacteria escapes antibiotics and you have to go with more antibiotics and more and you have these super drug resistant antibiotics. And these happen are emerging all the time and it's actually getting worse. So it's the same kind of evolutionary drivers that create these super bug antibiotic resistant things that is also driving the evolution to, again, to a more perfect contagious virus because that's how nature does it. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Dr. Eric Feigelding. He's an epidemiologist, health economist, and senior fellow at the Federation of American Scientists in Washington, D.C. He was one of the very first to sound the alarm for the severity of, of this uh, cataclysm, this pandemic, back in a year ago, January of uh, 2020. Uh, doctor, I'd love to ask you about the kind of the human nature aspects of this that were really, you know, surprising to me. And again, I'm I'm I I didn't do well in biology. I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't deal with uh with orgo and everything in high school. I'm decidedly kind of a, you know, humanities guy. But I remember this discussion of fight or flight and the the reptilian brain and humans, we did see the manifestation immediately at Walmart, at Target, at the grocery store of uh, people cleaning the shelves, mm. stripping them bare of toilet paper and wipes and Purell and Clorox. But a lot of mm. these same people were not wearing masks. A lot of these same people thought that it might be a, a, a big hoax mm. intended maybe to take down the president in an election year. So there's this kind of this cognitive dissonance. On, on the one hand, you could understand that I got to look out for myself and get my groceries, but there wasn't this kind of look out for myself and my community with the mask or uh, uh, um, you know, social distancing and the like. And I'm still troubled by that tableau a year later. 
Yeah, I think, you know, whether it's the hoarding of the toilet paper, which got ridiculous, or the this denialism of this virus by the right-wing community, which this denialism was also driven by a lot of agenda because they want to keep the businesses open and therefore they pushed herd immunity as this perfect-sounding way of keep everything open, go for natural infection, everyone, build your immune system, we will survive all this. And of course, we know that natural infection herd immunity is woefully dangerous. And, you know, the, the term herd immunity is only from um, in vaccine epidemiology. It's a vaccine strategy, not any other strategy for natural infection. But we also see the right wing use it and abuse it. And we actually saw, we FAS, we actually did analysis. So much of the pro-herd immunity was actually driven by bots. Like half the conversations online were driven by bots. By bots. Yeah, social, by social by media bots, bots. And bot-like accounts. And we, they define it bot-like accounts because they tweet and reply so fast, it's humanly impossible to tweet so fast. And that's why they think they're driven by bots. And of course, there's... Only me and a few other people who are pushing bash. But the agenda, the agenda being who being kind of the Wizard of Oz behind that curtain, the business well, community, well, the, I, the, we don't the political know. We don't community. Know, but like, clearly, clearly there was a push. You know, Scott Atlas pushed it. The UK government tried to uh, push it. Sweden tried to push it. it. It's it's very it's one of those sweet little lies that sounds really really good. And in certain ways, it's human nature. You want to be lulled into a sweet little lie because it sounds good. It solves everything, and it's and this is in certain. But doctor, this was this was clear and present life and death. I yeah. mean, you saw what was happening in New York. New York running out of mortuary oh, space, yeah. having to dig up public park space and everything. Was that were people just maybe romancing that that was a a, a sound lot kind of in the landing of the moon? Did they not? I just remember when it was first dead, dead, dead serious for me. Markets really collapsed in March. You had uh, professional teams, colleges kind of canceling, distancing the balance of the semester. You you kind of got the message that this was dead serious. Mm. But and yet others, you're saying were amenable to kind of this romancing this siren song of of it's not all that right exactly in the first wave new york city and the northeast were really hit hard really hit hard as you as you remember and almost you know no one in new york knew uh didn't know anyone who wasn't infected and of course the sirens makes it so much real and you try to call ambulance ambulances and come for hours and hours that was real and people in northeast saw it and witnessed it or indirectly witnessed it from their friends. In the rest of the country, like Texas, Arizona, South Dakota, they weren't affected at all in the first wave much at all, other than Louisiana. So, but you don't believe that people are dropping dead, that it's only going to affect blue yeah, because state it, New Yorkers? Yeah, that's, why, that's what I'm saying. They, again, this is, goes back to what I was saying earlier. People don't believe or people can't imagine something that they've never personally witnessed before this is why the same thing whether it's aliens or you know i don't i don't i don't i make the alien thing because it's something that no one's ever witnessed before but the pandemic no one has witnessed before and people can't see that this kind of level thermonuclear level pandemic uh they can't imagine it because you know, they're in Texas, rural Texas. Everything is fine. Like, what's with this big hoopla and shutting down everything in New York City? Oh, New York City is super dense. We're in rural South Dakota. We barely have any people within arm's reach. We're never going to get hit with this. 
And again, also people didn't realize it was an airborne virus um, back then. People kept focusing on washing hands and scrubbing all their veggie delivery and also not wearing masks until much later. And people were just in complete denial because they can't imagine what they haven't personally witnessed. And the most of the country in the first wave were not hit by this whatsoever. Dr. Feigelding, explain now as you fast forward that it has truly catastrophically hit places like Los Angeles, where, you know, ambulances are being told to disregard certain calls. El Paso, Texas, uh, parts of New England, clearly South Florida. Uh, Anyone who has had relative and assisted living, it's very clear and present if you're not allowed to visit with them or the mortality rate or the nursing home having to tell you that people are infected or died. Um, and, and you see uh, obituaries in certain cities. The obituary announcements are huge. Mm-hmm. So I'm still amazed. And again, color me naive that I can walk into a Kroger or I can walk into a Walmart now kind of 10, 11 months into this pandemic. And people might still walk in and not wear masks or think that <sighs> it doesn't affect them or this is a matter of free will that they're taking the risk on their own hands, that it hasn't been truly internalized that what you're trying to do is for the sake of the community to keep the air as sterile as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, How much death and and catastrophe do you need for people to realize that this is omnipresent? And uh, that's a really good question. In certain ways, people work in healthcare see that's real. Hospitals, ERs, they see it, right? But in certain ways, this out of sight, out of mind is a very true phrase because those people who do get sick, uh, they drop out. They don't go to Walmart. They don't go to Kroger's. They don't go to restaurants in these places like Florida where it's it's still open. And those who naturally still go, of course, everyone's still healthy. Everyone hasn't affected or, you know, they're one of the asymptomatics. And again, the people who are dying in nursing homes, they're not seen. They're out of sight. Right. And hospitals, people who die in hospitals, they're out of sight. The only thing we actually see uh, makes it real is, again, sirens. Uh, We see morgues and we see something such as like, oh, schools. Oh, the teacher died. Oh, oh. And and of course, some uh, occasionally some young people who die. But for most elderly people who die, they're out of sight. And I think this out of sight, out of mind allows them to keep playing because, again, they didn't get selected to be hospitalized by Mother Nature. And so they just keep going and around them, they're in this echo chamber of, I'm not sick. Why, why am I? Why are you sick? It's, it's, I think it's kind of like a country club. You, you have a bunch of people go to, go to a country club who are incredibly wealthy. No one ever uh, suffers any hunger whatsoever. And so uh, if you ask them, oh, do any of you have uh, trouble affording your insulin today? Anyone had to cut their meds? Anyone had to basically skimp on all these uh, basic necessities just to live? No, why would I? <laughs> you know, it, it's it's that country club mentality. But instead of its wealth, it's just their susceptibility. And those who are just not being hit just keep partying as if everything is okay. And this is where it's so important, where social networks and social ties are so critical that if you actually see your local, you know, nursing home, all these deaths, if you see and actually see go into the hospitals and actually see your local teachers and police fall sick and ill and die, and as a community, you can actually absorb it and that this is real. 
but there's American society is such a rugged individualistic kind of thing where, you know, someone else dying is not my problem. And if it's out of sight and out of mind, it's a fanciful thing where it, it just doesn't happen. And again, most people don't also don't visit the hospital and they don't visit the morgue or the coroner's office. And it's, it's, this is why I think this America's rugged individualism and lack of social cohesion and the enclaving of many, many people from the other side of the track kind of mentality is what feeds this further. Full disclosure, stay with us. We're joined by Dr. Eric Feigelding, epidemiologist, health economist, and senior fellow at the Federation of American Scientists. He was one of the very first to sound the alarm over social media. It was January of 2020 about this was happening, this pandemic, and it was serious, and the multiplier effect was serious. And when that happened, doctor, did you imagine that the stats would be where they are today or that we are kind of at the worst? We're seeing 4,000 plus daily deaths mm -hmm. a year after that tweet went out um, in the United States. Yeah. In terms of is it imaginable? Like, yes, a, a, a pandemic that bad is always imaginable because we have historical context of how bad it is. But it, was it likely? I, I would have been like, mm, can't get that. It's going to get bad, but maybe – you know, 100,000 people die. It's a huge number, right? Maybe 200 of her unlucky. But now we're pushing almost 400,000 people. And that's just the diagnosed ones. It's, it's really, it's really surreal. And, and I would have said, oh, 50,000 cases a day is, ooh, that's bad. A thousand deaths a day nationwide. Ooh, that's, that's really bad. But that's where we were in the spring and in the summer. Right now, it's not, I don't blame the virus as much as it is a failure of our leadership, failure of human nature, of also terrible bad actors that are trying to push herd immunity because it's the convenient uh, uh, business uh, concept, pro-business concept, and also failure of our, our media to convey, convey accurately. You're a health economist. I just had a, a conversation about a week back with a really respected, well-known investor. And he candidly told me that, I said, listen, with you know the Trump in the final days of his administration, is there something he could have done differently if he earnestly and solemnly had a State of the Union address and said, we are in war and we need to all unite? And he cast that aside and he said, you just can't because you know, getting into the herd immunity conversation, do you want to kind of throw out the baby of the economy and mental health and, and young people's socialization with the bathwater of, of everything else that we could jettison. He was very much resigned to this idea that you have to kind of let the thing self-limit itself. You have to let the conflagration Ugh. burn out. Is there no validity to that scientifically? That is so, so stupid. That's actually why we're here. That's part of the pro-herd, we got to let it burn. It's basically creating this choice of, oh, you either save the economy or you save lives. Well, you know... If you ruin the economy, you ruin more lives and blah, blah, blah. It's not a choice like that. That's what the pro-herd immunity uh, people and throwing the baby out with the bathwater argument has done. I, I would use this analogy. If you're trying to uh, reopen a zoo or reopen Jurassic Park, but, oh, there's a one stray velociraptor or, you know, one stray lion in your zoo just wandering somewhere. Oh, haven't really found them yet, but... It's one, but hey, kids, come on, come to the zoo, come to Jurassic Park. No one's gonna come to your zoo or Jurassic Park if a velociraptor or a lion is still wandering around. They're, your economy is never gonna come back all the way. You can try to open your movie theaters, but you know what? What actually keeps people out is the risk of infection. 
And again, whether it's risk of infection to themselves or they're gonna, they fear bringing it home to their grandma and grandpa or someone else with a um, immune disease or other general illness that's gonna make them sick and die. That fear is gonna keep people home, and you're never gonna have full business recovery. It's so it's so stupid. You know, we see it in government decisions around, you know, government shutdowns. We never really act until the you know eleventh hour. When basically all is going to go to hell unless we act now. And finally, people come together and broker a deal. But in terms of long-term planning, you know, something that's actually good for the long-term, you see companies avoiding that. Oh, they would rather do a stock buyback or rather do some stock scheme to drive the stock price up for the quarterly earnings rather than actually long-term health. And instead of, you know, seeing it from that long-term lens, so many of us see in short-term. And so the ones who did see in the long-term lens, they realized like Taiwan, New Zealand, Australia, to basically lock down before hospital beds, before ICU beds are full. They're the ones who succeeded because they realized basically a little pain early on, which a full hard lockdown and you, you put the, this bug out of its misery before it can climb out of anything, out, out of its hole and infect the whole population, is actually better long-term. And now look, those who went hard, really hard with the lockdown, very strict early on, now basically have concerts, they have mosh pits, they have soccer games and all these gatherings and kids are back in school because they've squashed the virus with a very fast, aggressive move prophylactically instead of waiting until ICUs are full right now, which is so stupid. What was the, curi- what was the curious case of Sweden, which we've always oh. been told, you know, Scandinavia is hyper woke when it comes to these things, but they decided to take a kind of a more of a free will approach early on and use your best discretion and social distance and maybe keep sick or elderly people out of the mix. But, but, you know, keep on about your lives. How did that play out? What was the thinking behind it? And how did it reverb through the spring and the summer? <sighs> yeah, again, it was one of this herd. It's a misuse of the word herd immunity. Herd immunity is only for vaccines. But they think, oh, you know, we'll just, I'm pretty sure we'll, we'll get enough people infected quickly that we'll have natural infection. It's keeping it open is good because we're a healthy society. In certain ways, you know, Sweden, uh, has much better healthcare system than the United States. If we tried to do fully do what Sweden did all the way, you know, it would actually be much worse. And in certain ways, that's actually where we are now. But, you know, they, they kept denying it. Uh, you know, while we're talking, I'm actually trying to find the actual quotes. I have a, a whole quote book of, of Swedish things. Right. Uh, and, and Tegnell, which is their chief epidemiologist, kept saying, oh, we've hit herd. Oh, herd is kicking in. We're not going to have a second wave. We're not going to have a third wave. Oh, we're, we're going to be protected. We're going to be way better than anyone else. And all these, again, sweet, sweet little lies that we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel good. And they're, they're such, they're so tempting and luring. But in the long run, we know that it doesn't work. Did it, well, put it put it the other way. Did anybody get it particularly right? You'd mentioned Taiwan. Taiwan South Korea South, got plotted. South Korea initially. had fast New testing. Zealand. New Zealand had right. fast lockdowns. Australia has fast lockdowns. And in, in certain ways, they locked down as soon as the curve was going up again. But meanwhile, contrast it with many other countries where, oh, hospital beds are not full. You know, Mexico said this. Hospital beds are not full. We don't need to do anything right now. We have hospital beds free. If that was the case... Why would we do anything public health? Oh, we don't need helmet laws. Um, we don't need seatbelt laws. We don't need airbag laws or rules, regulations. 
We don't need environmental, you know, lead poisoning. We don't need any of those because you know what? Our hospital beds are not full. That was the stupidest, stupidest arguments I've ever heard. But, but you hear it time and time again, we don't need to do anything yet. We don't need to lock down and close down because our hospital beds are not full. And But now by the time hospital beds are full, which there's, there's always a lag um, from infection to hospitalization to death, it's already too late. And now look at Los Angeles. Look at... Uh, so many uh, places with uh, hospitals completely overwhelmed, ICUs overwhelmed, staffing. You can add more beds, actually. You can order more beds. You can, you know, pitch more tents, emergency field tents. But you can't just invent more doctors and nurses to staff them. And that's where the critical uh, crisis now has hit that we didn't hit in the spring or or the summer. It's just the worst, most irresponsible thing. And all these lies and hoaxes, uh, dismissal kind of things that the right-wing media try to pump at the same time to, because it's the pro-business thing to do it, and or the pro-Trump thing to do. It is just so, so dangerous. And someday we're going to have a 9-11 type commission kind of look back of where the hell did we go wrong. And all these things are going to come out. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Dr. Eric Feigelding, epidemiologist, health economist, and senior fellow at the Federation of American Scientists. He was among the very first epidemiologists out there to sound the true alarm in early 2020 for uh, COVID-19, which has claimed millions of lives across the planet, at least 400,000 lives in the United States. You know, this, this truly... I guess the declaration of COVID, its inception in the U.S., when we realized it was a thing here, was was around mid-March, right? Yeah, well, we woke up in around mid-March when we finally started doing more testing. And then we realized, oh, shoot, there's a lot of cases. And then we started doing sequencing. And then we realized, oh, shoot, this strain is a community infection strain unrelated to the early January strains from travelers from China. And the more we dug, we, we realized, oh shoot, this New York City infection, it didn't come from China. It actually came from Italy and Spain. All the, the vast majority of the New York City strains, the variants, were Italian and Spanish variants. So we completely left that Atlantic side open and completely looked at the wrong side. So in a certain way, calling the China virus is stupid because it wasn't even China that introduced it to the America. And we already have evidence in uh, November, December of 2019 that was already in Europe before the Wuhan thing got out of control. You know, it was one of those blind spots. It was one of those things where we think it came from Wuhan because that's where it was most visible. But we completely ignored our rear. We completely got flanked, outflanked really, really bad by this virus. And also, you know, the saying, no testing, no pandemic. Uh, we also now know with sure. all these variants, no sequencing, no mutations. It says, see no evil, hear no evil, stick your head in the sand like sure, an ostrich sure. and hope that everything is fine. But it clearly it is not. And we haven't learned that yet. And just so you know, like uh, UK has sequenced 88,000 virus samples Denmark, this pretty small country, Denmark has sequenced 11,000 to find mutations. The U.S. has sequenced 750 since B117 has been discovered. That is just woefully <laughs> embarrassing. And so this is why we're so worried because then B117 is here. We're, we're having this, it's like deja vu. It's January again. We're not sequencing enough. This more contagious virus is here, floating around here somewhere. And we're not doing enough to mitigate it. And people are getting fatigue, 
around the original virus, but the new one is creeping up on us. And the new Brazilian and uh, South African one might even have potential antibody vaccine escape potential that is scaring the bejesus out of everyone, including Boris Johnson today. I have to ask you in terms of in terms of scaring the bejesus out of people, this is a thought experiment and maybe a bit of a counterfactual. But suppose that when the severity did hit, let's say a majority of the uh, you know U.S. electorate or public opinion back in the spring of 2020, that this affected adults and children alike, how different would the reaction have been? I mean, like if it were an Ebola caliber thing that suddenly our children or younger people or or people at raves or foam raves or beaches out in the Ozarks mm. or anything were not immune from this. They could drop dead. They could be long haulers. How would society have reacted differently? Oh, I think it would have acted very differently. So first of all, young people are not immune. Young adults are not immune. A lot of people who die and get hospitalized are young adults and, and, and even kids too. But if it was more, say it was more even in terms of case fatality rate, if it was much more even, I think the reaction would have been, oh my gosh, my college student, my teenager, just drop dead. As opposed to my 80, 90 year old grandma who is in a nursing home. Oh, she was going to, you know, she's there. She's kind of kind of waiting to die anyways. It's not my quote. That's what people, the callous people are saying, you know, oh, they're dying of old age anyways. And again, I don't know if you heard, remember the 6% hoax where of only the, of all the people who died, only 6% didn't have any pre-existing conditions. Therefore, only 6% people died of COVID. Everyone else died of everything else, which is ludicrous. You know, you have a congressman elect um, uh, who's 41 years old. He died. He had no other pre-existing conditions, but he died. He was 41 years old. And there's, again, so much denialism. But if that actually happened to across a swath of young people, we would have definitely woken up. But instead, we in the early stages of the pandemic, we waved it off. Oh, it's an, a disease of old age. It's these nursing homes. Again, this out of sight, out of mind thing, because nursing home people are out of sight. But we know that's what's actually happening. It's young people. They have way more exposure. They see tons of more people than an elderly person in a nursing home every day on a given day. They transmit so much more. They're asymptomatic carriers, which, by the way, a lot of people actually dismissed. There is no asymptomatic transmission. There was no asymptomatic transmission with the old SARS, supposedly, even though we never study it to the degree we have now. Oh, there's no asymptomatic transmission. And so, you know, symptoms, don't worry about it. But now we clearly know 30 to 50% of all transmission is asymptomatic transmission. But it's young people who are doing this asymptomatic transmission that's blowing it up. And in certain ways, that is... Again, back to the out of sight, out of mind. If you aren't visibly sick, it's not real and you're not endangering anyone. And remember masks, cloth masks, the main goal of cloth masks is not self-protection, but protect others around you. And if everyone wears it, you protect everyone, including yourself. But that's not true when uh, half the people don't wear masks. In, In certain ways, I actually think we need to switch to more premium mass. But again, it's so much of this out of sight, out of mind kind of thing where people just want to push it away. It can't, it can't affect me. It's just old people. It's just sick people. It's people who are going to die anyways. That is so callous and so, it reveals so much of the lack of humanity that we have, the lack of social cohesion and lack of actually care for society as a whole as opposed to this individualistic, everyone on their own, damn everyone else who cares about them mentality. 
that we often have. Doctor, tell me about how this has been personalized for you. Uh, one of the things that's striking to me is I remember Dr. Fauci on 60 Minutes talking about how he's been vilified and threatened in this. I mean, it's one of those things, again, that everybody throws around Orwellian and dystopian a lot, kind of yeah. in the 2020, 2021 timestamp. But talk about, you know, shooting the messenger. And this has happened to you as well. Oh, yes. Um, you know, it's it's kind of really surreal. Obviously, there is the right-wing attacks. I was one of the people pushing against hydroxychloroquine when clearly there was no trials that support its And, and trials actually say it doesn't work. And actually, some of them increasing risk. I was pushing against a herd immunity. I was one of the most vocal, but also one of the most attacked. I've had, you know, tons of right-wing outlets right, literally crazy scandalous things that are completely untrue and saying I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm a nutritionist, or I flunked out of medical school when I didn't flunk out whatsoever. <laughs> and, you know, I, in certain ways, it's political, some, some of it is political, and it's fine. Early on, it really hurt my feelings was when some of the fellow scientists says I was a fear monger. I was a charlatan, I was a attention seeking hog. And Oh, you're epidemiology. You, you're not an infectious disease expert, but you know, you don't have to be an infectious disease expert to actually see how bad it is. You don't need to know the intricacies of the modeling. I'm, I'm an epidemiologist with a doctor of science in epidemiology, department of epidemiology. I know that this is bad, but in certain ways, they're not the ones who are blowing the whistle. They've, they've got to cover their ass. And I understand that you're in academia. You don't want to ruin, throw away everything. But if I'm trying to warn people, don't try to actually undermine, you know, this is where blue on green actually confuses the message for the public. And the public say, oh, maybe, oh, so-and-so says it's not real. It's not going to be a problem. It's overblown uh, kind of thing. That actually caught this hesitancy. It causes people to go to hold back actually really hurt the reaction. And even when these other academia people realized that they were wrong, they didn't want to actually say that I was right. And I don't, I don't really care about what they actually think, but what actually hurts the public messaging is that there's this confusion and delay and that actually slows down the pandemic response. When clearly all we had to do was jump up from our seats Take this seriously. Consider a lockdown as quickly as possible, like New Zealand, Taiwan, South Korea did. I wanted us to become a South Korea, New Zealand, Taiwan that literally throws their entire army of resources and national mobilization directly at this problem very fast so we can snip it in the butt. In a certain way, that's the most frustrating of all. Because let me just timestamp this for posterity, just for everybody who's listening down the line. And if you're going back into the time capsule, uh, COVID-19, according to CNN, is now killing faster at any point in 2020. And the new year just started. We are in the second week of January 2021. The U.S. reported its highest number of COVID-19 deaths in one day, Tuesday, January 12th, 4,327, according to Hopkins. In fact, the five highest daily tallies for new infections and new deaths have all occurred in 2021. So while we have... Uh, the vaccine's out and you're having kind of, you know, it's being distributed in fits and and, and spurts. We're nowhere near uh, kind of a, a breakthrough or a plateau in this. And again, this is a year after you sounded your initial alarm. Yeah, it is really surreal. And we've been lurching from one messaging crisis to another. Like first, we had to basically, I had to convince people, hey, guys, this is really bad. We need to sound the alarm, you know, declare emergency. 
And then we had to say, hey, folks, there's asymptomatic transmission. It's like, no, there isn't. You don't know what you're talking about. No, there isn't. Oh, you don't have proof of that. Just because, you know, the scientific level of proof that we need to prove a drug works is not the same kind of proof that we need, you know, in terms of the precautionary principle. Maybe one side is right, one side is wrong. But if the one side that is right is really, really has a cataclysmic consequence if they're right, we better listen to the one side that has this 30, 40% chance of being right. And and again, we played this many times. Oh, asymptomatic transmission. Oh, maybe you should wear masks. Oh, but then Surgeon General says don't wear masks. But you know, we masks do work. Oh, but that masks don't really help. Oh, but we need to save healthcare workers, which again, caused a lot of confusion. And then um, the other major thing was airborne transmission. This is airborne. And airborne scientists who studied respiratory viruses for years know that ventilation is so critical and we, six feet rule is not enough. It's, this is an airborne virus. Staying six feet is so stupid. But then, you know, the many virologists, infectious disease epidemiology, oh, we can't prove that. Oh, it's not really airborne. You're confusing the technology. It's not airborne like you people think it's air. No, it's airborne. And now, of course, uh, many months later, after that battle started in late June, early July, of course, finally, we got recognition as airborne. And only because of uh, an inside connection with someone who knew Fauci. But... Before, without that, wow. you know, WHO right now still doesn't fully acknowledge that it is airborne is a major source of transmission. We've had so many of these battles and that has cost so much time within even the scientific community that had we taken the precautionary principle and just locked everything down, assumed it was airborne like Japan and South Korea was and taken the most precautions, we would not be here. Dr. Eric Feigelding, in the few minutes we have left with you, I have to ask you, suppose you and I are having this uh, follow-up conversation in January of 2026, uh, five years hence. <laughs> what are the chances that uh, the average American, the average citizen just forgets about this? It's a, it's a forgotten, lurid nightmare to the extent that many people did not want to take it as seriously as possible. Um, you know, once all the COVID theater is stripped down, the plexiglass comes down, people stop wiping things down. They go back to movie theaters and concerts. After all, you are a student of history and you did look at the roaring 20s following mm -hmm. 1917 and 1918. Yeah, I first of all, I think this event, uh, it's not just a one day event. It's this multi-year event. It will definitely go down in history as one of the most memorable. Uh, it's going to be like a 9-11 type, uh, something that's burned into our collective memory. The issue is, what is that collective memory? Because half of this country still believe it's a hoax, and we could get out of it uh, with vaccines in the coming months, year, with still half the people believing it's a hoax or overblown or not wearing masks. And so those people who survive it with that hoax, overblown mentality still intact is going to carry forward this in a dangerous way. It's in certain ways, you know, after the Civil War, half the country calls the Civil War as a war against slavery, and then half of the country calls it the War of Northern Aggression. And to this day, a certain segment of the South still calls it the War of Northern Aggression, and it was a war for states' rights and blah, 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 when clearly it was for slavery. And I feel like five years from now, we're going to remember this day, just like the, remember the Civil War, but there are going to be potentially two different memories and versions of what had happened and how bad it was and you know who was right and all these things which will get lost in the fog of war. So right now, it's really important that we document 
everything. And we clearly, clearly etch this in our collective memory and clearly unite together to fight this and end this sooner and stop the misinformation. Because, you know, just like we still have Confederate flags flying 150 years later after the Civil War was over and people believing the war of Northern aggression instead of slavery, I feel we may have, we may escape this in five years without a good collective understanding of what happened. You know, I hope we have a good collective memory just like we have of the World War II. Very few people in America argue was World War II overblown or, or was fighting Nazism right or wrong. You know, we don't have that because we came together after World War II. Well, anti- anti-fascist, for what it's worth, has become a controversial <laughs> word oh my God, in yes. the year 2020. But I, I digress. You know, we didn't even get into the Confederate flag ba- back in the Capitol the first week of oh 2021. But Dr. Eric Feigelding, epidemiologist, health economist, senior fellow at the Federation of American Scientists. You can follow him on uh, Twitter. You are widely, widely followed. Sir, you are always welcome on this show. I'm grateful to have you on. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I hope everyone listening stays safe and we will get through this together. And if we want to go fast and get out of this together, we have to stick together and listen to science. So stay safe. Thank you, sir. Full Disclosure, special thanks this week to Claire Morgan at Notterly. Subscribe to Full Disclosure on Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. We're on Spotify and NPR One. And you can follow the show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Full D Radio. A shout out to our radio listeners in Arlington, Virginia, Asheville, North Carolina, and soon... Ventura County, California. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. Mm-hmm.